0: Hello and welcome to our latest Aon pensions podcast, focusing on providing resettlement insights to help you on your journey to settlement. I'm your host Karen Gainsford, an associate partner in Aon's Resettlement Group, and I'm joined today by Lucy Barron and Ross Mitchell. Both Lucy and Ross are members of Aon's Resettlement Group with an investment background and are particularly focused on the topic we're discussing today, which is preparing your assets along your journey to settlement welcome both.
1: Hi Karen. Thanks for having us.
0: So I'd really like to explore where the traditional approach to investment needs to be adjusted when thinking about the joint settlement. So to get us started, what in your view is the
1: relative importance of cash flow matching assets and the liquidity in those end game targets? I think it's really important to think about the different types of end game targets that pension schemes have. So the end game target could be buyout, which, which is clearly the gold standard, removing all risk and cost from from the pension scheme. It could be, you know, running the scheme on in a self-sufficiency or, or low dependency type of basis. I think liquidity matters for all of those different end games. You know, clearly you need the ability to pay pensions, you need the ability to fund things like transfer value payments and so on. And if your target is buyout, you also need the liquidity to be able to to sell assets cheaply and pass those assets across to the insurer i think where cash flow matching assets have more of a role to play is for some of the schemes thinking about low dependency you know often when we think about cash flow matching assets we think about assets such as corporate bonds which which can have a role to play in in insurer strategy but you need to think about the type and the allocation of those but also in cash flow matching assets you think about illiquid assets that generate income and they are much more challenging from a buyout perspective. So I think cash flow matching assets are particularly relevant for schemes thinking about low dependency and being quite confident they'll they'll run them on um, for for a, a prolonged period. I think it's much more important to think about liquidity, ensure matching assets where your targets buy out.
0: Okay, and I guess the ultimate cash flow matching asset could be thought of as a a, a buy-in. So. Ross, how likely are schemes to use phased buy-ins on that joint settlement? It's a really interesting question. I think
2: first and foremost, they're a great risk management tool. I mean, as as you just said, you know, possibly the best cash flow matching asset you can get, but it's also just better thinking about it in the context of you know having a diversified portfolio that is seeking to reduce your risks. And as we're seeing more schemes de-risk and you get close to your funding target, you do start to to reduce your growth asset risk and hopefully you've got some some good hedging that's reduced your interest rate and inflation risk as well. And at that point, things like longevity do start to become your dominant risk. So thinking about a phased buy-in approach might be really helpful in controlling those risks, but there are are some other considerations in that as well. Clearly the size of your buy-in matters, the impact it's going to have on your investment strategy, things like making sure you have enough collateral within your LDI portfolio to make sure that you can withstand any big market shocks is going to be key. So stress testing is clearly an essential part of, of doing any type of phase buy-in work. Okay,
0: and how well do you think schemes understand the impact of a future buy-in on their investment strategy?
2: So I, I'd say the answer is actually pretty mixed. Some schemes have got a really firm grasp of how they're going to approach phased buy-ins along the way and i think some some don't clearly having a well-structured plan is going to be you know key to success i think understanding the impact of of any buy-in on your leverage on your risk return on liquidity is is, is essential i think that you need to be careful you're not just entering into transaction almost based on trust I think that that lack of a plan could cause you to have issues further down the line, understanding that you're perhaps in a good place now to do a buy and you've got lots of collateral within your LDI portfolio, you don't think it's going to be an issue, that is great. But equally, if in five years' time, you're thinking about doing a second buy-in, understanding the implications that it's going to have and whether that would perhaps impair you doing one later down the line and perhaps you know eliminating more longevity risk is going to be key so planning is essential and having an understanding of how you're going to approach this both now and in the future is is going to be important
1: and i think we're seeing more and more clients wanting to have these discussions about buy-ins so to give you a kind of couple of examples um, we've worked with a number of clients where we've set up a tool um, to look at What's the implications of doing a buy-in on the residual investment portfolio? Can they still withstand big shocks in interest rates? Can they withstand big um, increases in, in transfer values? And really getting clients comfortable with talking through those risks and thinking about the liquidity impacts are, are absolutely key. So that, that's that's quite a well-trodden path and something we've done with, with a number of clients. I think the other thing, just, just taking back to a, a client I was talking to last week, We're seeing lots of clients that are looking at um, buy-ins and thinking about all the implications of it. So this client, a £300 million fiduciary client, found that by doing a 25% buy-in, so when I say 25%, using 25% of their assets to do a pensioner buy-in, they could actually reduce their investment risk by 25%. They could reduce their cost by 25%, as well as having a substantial reduction in their longevity risk by 20%. So people often think this is a way of, of reducing longevity risk, but it's much more than that if it's used properly as, as part of an integrated investment strategy.
2: I think there's also just the, the consideration around making sure that you can withstand any any shocks. I think where we have spoken about this, I think already, we've really focused on the, the LDI portfolio, but it, it's an liquid asset essentially. So any buy-in, you need to make sure that if we did have a particularly poor few years and, and asset returns were either, you know negative or particular below expectations, then you need to make sure you've got enough juice in the tank, perhaps is a way of phrasing it, um to, to get you out of any hole that may arise versus your funding plan. So making sure you've done that modeling, as Lucy was saying, and got really to grips with how it's going to look and, and how you're going to get there is really important.
0: it's oh, really good points. yeah So lucy, what what specific steps have you seen schemes take to adjust their investments to better
1: match end game targets? i think I think a few things. Um, and I've touched on some of these already. I think one thing is is taking stock, you know, before you get to that point of buying out. Just thinking through when you're three years away or five years away, seven years away. What are the specific risks in your portfolio? What are the risks in terms of the things you hold, like illiquid assets? And what are the risks in terms of things that you don't hold? So insurer pricing is is driven by a number of factors, but including interest rate and inflation um, movements, and also movements in in corporate bond assets um, in particular. So what does that all mean? Well. It means that as you get closer to buyout, thinking about hedging with um, the buyout liabilities in mind, particularly if you've got a technical provisions basis that that's still gilts plus um, an amount, then then thinking about more of a buyout basis can give you better hedging than was done on the technical provisions basis. And thinking about hedging, you know, close to 100%, um, probably not all the way to 100%, but but higher amounts make makes sense the other thing is investment grade corporate bonds we see different insurers investing uh, at different times in, in different amounts of those but all of them have an allocation to corporate bonds so building an allocation to corporate bonds typically somewhere 20 30 40% of assets is the right approach for for schemes approaching approaching buyouts and then the other thing i've mentioned already just thinking about a plan for the illiquid assets think about a plan if you get to buy out in the timeframes you expect but also importantly what about if you if you get there early that that's the other key aspect for for illiquid assets so Ross,
0: just just picking up on that point around illiquids how well do schemes understand their ability to actually sell those and the potential costs involved
2: that's a really tricky question i think the challenge with illiquids is we speak about them like they're one kind of homogeneous asset class that's easy to categorize and, and bucket but when you scratch a surface you you realize that illiquids have a very broad kind of meaning under the under the surface and and therefore the particular type of illiquid liquid we're talking about is a key illiquids range from things that are perhaps you know 20 year fund cycle from your initial investment to to getting your final cash out at the end to perhaps a five year cycle so actually those types of things clearly impact your planning towards buyout when you expect to have all the cash actually liquid enough to, to enter a transaction but it also impacts how readily you can sell them on the secondary market so we've entered a world where your schemes in a great position and actually you think you could afford for to buy out. In fact, you've even got enough of a surplus that perhaps you could take a little bit of a haircut, you could take a little bit of a hit by selling some of your liquids on the secondary market. The important thing is that those liquids are attractive to people on the secondary market. So actually, shorter dated ones that are more mature and you actually have an understanding of what's being invested in, it is key and far more attractive to people to to purchase. Therefore, having a little bit of A forethought up front when you are committing to illiquids as to the type of illiquids and their time horizon it's key to your success from a growth strategy you know to generate the terms you need but also it's key to making sure you can liquidate your assets to enter into buy-in in in the future I think it's fair to say that most consultants would say if you're planning for a buy-in or buy-out in the next you know five to ten years you would have to think long and hard about Entering into any liquid assets. I think I'd be a bit more flexible than perhaps the average person and say, actually, illiquids do have a role, but you really do just have to think carefully about the type of illiquid. So, Aeon's more favorable at the moment towards credit based illiquid assets, and they could actually be quite attractive to people investing in a buy in driven investment strategy because they've actually got quite a short time horizon. So, Thinking about it in that context it is important and, and making sure you've got the plan as to how you're going to exit or how things are going to unwind is important. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that saying no illiquids is neither practical nor is it good for your investment strategy. It's more about making sure you've got a solid plan.
1: I think in some instances as well where schemes have got to buy out quicker than expected still had some illiquids, we've managed to negotiate in some cases deferred premiums with insurers to to enable the the fail face sale of the illiquid assets on if that where that's a small portion of the assets and particularly where where the larger deal sizes. I think, you know, the the other thing as Ross has said is you know there's not a one size fits all for illiquids. It depends on the type of illiquid assets. And we've managed to sell in in the primary market or or secondary market or in our fiduciary business in in some cases, transition between different clients with with different time horizons um, and different views on illiquid assets. So there are solutions, but Really, you you need to be prepared uh, and and think ahead and and make sure you need them in your strategy and and you've thought through the the potential timelines.
0: Okay, and then Lucy, how how well do schemes understand the implications of
1: transferring, whether it's some or all of their assets, to an insurer or consolidator? I think it's always been well understood at the point of transaction. I think we're now having those conversations with clients earlier um, as part of the wider investment strategy discussions. So thinking ahead when, when schemes are still a few years away from that buyout target, thinking ahead of, of how you can better match insurer pricing and then how you can be as uh, set up as well as possible to have buyout ready um, assets that are liquid and transferable to an insurer um, you know I think I think that's a key, key change in, in the last year or two. And I think in terms of you know what do those assets look like well, all insurers are happy to to receive cash and gilts. Over and above that, there are then questions about um, whether insurers will accept credits, they will in certain circumstances, but it depends on the insurer, it depends on the amount of assets held in those credits, the type of credits. It can even change, you know, depending on market conditions and and timing within one insurer. So, So what we tend to find is you've really got to plan for having an allocation to cash and gilts And where you're holding credit, what we're increasingly seeing is is clients holding credit in a more flexible way, using things like synthetic credit, where you can use the credit to better match insurer pricing, but you know you can sell the credit um, at the point you're transacting with an insurer, and you can sell it cheaply, and then just transition cash and gilts to an insurer. I think think that's a, a key development we've seen even in the last few months. Right, so we've had
0: a lot of good points made today. So I'm going to put you both on the spot
1: now. So if you could pass on
0: one top tip to our listeners of things they should definitely consider when preparing assets along the journey to settlement, what would it be, Ross? If I come to you first. I think I would
2: strongly encourage clients to do a plan and think about how they're going to to perhaps develop their plan in in a series of what if scenarios, you know, knowing that you have a strong focus on phased buy-ins along the way and planning for that you don't necessarily have to you know plans don't always go as as you hope perhaps but at least having a vision as how you'd like to see the future and and mapping out it does make a big difference and we, we touched on liquids you can see how understanding what your plan is and having that integrated with your investment strategy can make a big difference and make sure you don't just trip yourself up either now or in the future.
1: I think just going to that preparation point, I think that's the absolute key one. And I think it's thinking through the what ifs, what if you get there earlier. It's one of those things that it seems like a a really nice problem to have when you're a few years away, but it it really causes problems for clients if they get there quicker and and they haven't thought through the plans and and the what ifs in in advance. You don't want that to be a barrier. I think the other top tip is, you know, as we're seeing funding levels improved and we're seeing um, schemes de-risk, just taking a look and a think as to whether buy-ins do have a role to play as, as part of your investment strategy. If you've got lots of you know LDI assets that, that aren't being put to work, using those to to reduce longevity risk as well, reduce your, your management costs. I, I think is is a really key thing to do and you know longevity risk isn't my expertise i'm sure karen can can chip in but you know it does feel like more uncertain times than, than ever on longevity risk so um you know buy-ins and, and thinking about it in a joined up way as part of your investment strategy I, I think is really important now brilliant thanks both so it sounds to
0: me like a different mindset is needed to investment strategy when preparing assets along the journey to settlement liquidity seems to be key but also making sure any de-risking action you take do not unintentionally compromise the ultimate end goal so thank you both for joining us and sharing your perspectives thank you Karen thank you
2: thank you very much
0: so you've been listening to the latest edition of the Aon Pensions podcast on providing risk settlement insights to help you on your journey to settlement with me Karen Gainsford and my guests Lucy Barron and Ross Mitchell if you need any further information on Aon retirement solutions or resettlement in particular you can contact us by visiting our website or email us at us at aon.com.